If you have your Bibles this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Jordan and Brother David Thomas for speaking um, in my absence, and I, I know you guys were in good hands um, there. I'm just so thankful that God's Word just continues and, and will continue. So welcome to week 20 of our Romans series today, and today we come to probably one of the most difficult chapters in all of the book of Romans, and uh, I, I come after being gone for a week and just uh, having all kind of things go on yesterday, Friday and yesterday with our, our travel, so I am here in presence. If God speaks today, he gets all the glory. If I mess it up, it's all on me. So um, just, just keep that in mind as we um, unpack this this chapter, but when Paul wrote this letter, there was a shift that had occurred in the demographic of the church. So when the church first started, it was all Jewish. It started in Jerusalem. The people who believed in the Messiah were Jewish believers, but as time went on, things began to change. In fact, at this point, when Paul is writing the book of Romans, there are far more Gentile believers in this movement than Jewish believers. Even though the Messiah was a Jewish Messiah, the promises were Jewish promises. Israel as a nation had rejected Christ while the Gentiles had embraced Christ. So the issue is, since they had pushed Jesus aside, since the Jews had pushed aside Jesus, had God rejected them? Would God reject them? And this is where we need to remember that the book of Romans can be divided into four sections. Section 1 is from Romans 1 to Romans 3, 21, which presents the wrath of God. So Paul places all of us under the judgment of, of death because of our sin. Section 2 is from Romans 3, 21, all the way to chapter 9, 39, or 9, 39 which shows um, the wrath of God, or 839, excuse me, it shows the wrath of God being replaced by the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Then section 3 is Romans 9 through 11, which gives us the plan of God, ultimately the plan of God for Israel, that God had not and will not forsake his covenant. And then section 4, Romans 12 through 16, deal with the, the will of God, pursuing, desiring, wanting God's Will, But this morning we come to the beginning of this section on the plan of God. We just finished two weeks ago Romans 8, which many regard as the most inspiring and amazing chapter in all of the Bible. The chapter ends with God's love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we end with an emphatic, yes, yes, praise God. But then Romans 9 is the chapter that most people prefer to skip. For many, it begins with the thought of, Paul, what in the world are you doing? Or what in the world are you saying? So we go from this emphatic yes to this emphatic what? Like what in the world is Paul doing? We might expect Paul to go from this exalted language of God's love straight into application of it, but that doesn't happen until Romans 12. Yet we have to understand Romans 9, as difficult as it is, is in our Bibles for a reason. It's no accident that Paul includes this discussion about God's sovereignty immediately after declaring God's unwavering commitment to fulfill all of his purposes. Because this letter is a masterful 
argumentative work, as we talked about. Paul expected some of his arg- or some of his audience to make the following argument. Wait a minute, Paul. What about the Jews? They were chosen by God, and according to you, Paul, they have fallen away. They rejected Jesus. So if they rejected Jesus, God failed. Is that what you're saying, Paul, that God failed? And if God failed them, won't he fail us also? So Paul was taking on this argument, and he spends three chapters doing so. And just let me answer that this way. God is God, and he has more wisdom, more love, more grace, more mercy, and more understanding than we do. Albert Einstein's wife was once asked the question, do you understand the theory of relativity? And she responded by saying, no, I do not, but I know Albert, and he can be trusted. I know Albert, and he can be trusted, and there are Portions of scripture that are so deep we can't fully understand in this life. As finite beings, we just can't understand the infinite God in all of his ways. However, we can know him and he can be trusted. Our God can be trusted. And honestly, when I think about Romans 9, it's hard to even find good resources for this chapter. Most Bible Teachers skip it, and it, was, it would be easy for me to do the same, and I was tempted to just skip it. But this is a, it's an extremely important chapter because it is an extensive discussion, and probably the most extensive discussion in Scripture of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. That God is sovereign over our salvation, over every part of it, and yet we are responsible in it. Yet the question becomes, how do you hold to both God's comprehensive sovereignty over every bit of it and our responsibility in it? And the answer is, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And no, that's not a cop-out. That, if you think you have it all figured out, and let me tell you this, you know more than Paul does. You know more than the Apostle Paul does, and I don't think you do. I, I, I think we have to understand that this whole picture that has been given to us is a ministry that we or mystery that we have to trust. In the midst of the mystery, though, we know there is mercy. But let me also say this. Like I said, we're going deep today. Romans 9 has been used as one of the main texts that defends and portrays this theological belief of what's called predetermination. Meaning, this text is often interpreted as meaning that God unilaterally determines every single detail of our life, highlighted by who he will have mercy on and who he will um, have wrath upon. So in other words, some believe Romans 9 tells us that God has predetermined the fate of every single person, and God has either determined you're going to go to heaven or God has predetermined that you are going to spend your life in hell. And although I I lift high the sovereignty of God. I rejoice in it. I trust in it. I praise God because he is sovereign. At the same time, I also hold to the biblical teaching that we have been given freedom to exercise moral choices, and we are responsible for those choices. In fact, man's will is free because God is sovereign. If God was not sovereign, God could not trust us with freedom. But because God is sovereign, he's given us freedom. Meaning that whatever we decide to do, God is sovereign, that his plans and purposes will still be fulfilled even when we are determined to mess it all up. 
That is the beautiful picture of the God that we serve. So what I want to do today is I want to show you a four-tiered strategy of God in relation to the nation of Israel and ultimately in relation to us. And we're going to do it a little different today. Normally we stand up, we read it all, and then we break it down. Because there's so much here, I'm just going to let you be seated, and we're going to basically hit all four points and then read the verses um, as they appear section by section by section by section today. So a four-tiered strategy. The point... First point that we're going to unpack today is this. God's pick was Israel. God's pick, his pick from the beginning of the word of God that we see, especially getting into Genesis 12, was Israel. Now look with me at verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9. So Romans 9, 1 through 5, and Paul says this. I am speaking the truth of or in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever amen so god's pick was israel and paul basically begins this chapter by saying get this he wishes that he could be cursed so that his jewish brothers and sisters basically he's speaking in sense of heritage could be brought to faith he's saying god may you save them and if you would save them curse me and this reminds me of someone else in scripture a guy named moses maybe we remember When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were down from the mountain. They were acting like fools. So Moses goes down and he breaks the tablets, symbolizing that they had broken the Ten Commandments already. And God said to Moses, in effect, get out of the way and just let me destroy them all. Just get out of the way and let me destroy them. And Moses instead stepped in as an intercessor and he asked the Lord to forgive them. And Moses, in essence, said... God, if you don't forgive them, or if you would forgive them, blot my name out. Blot my name out instead and forgive them. This is a love that's hard to relate to. I mean, I think about the nation that I live in today, and I'm not sure that I could ever pray, Lord, take your salvation away from me and give it to them. I don't think I could pray that. Most of the time, here's my attitude. I look at our nation, I say, they're a bunch of fools who've rejected God, turned their back on God, and they're deserving of what they get. That's often how I view the world around it. And if, if, if you're being honest today, you probably feel the same exact way. In fact, I read your Facebook post. I know you do. So the, the picture is that's how we often feel, but that was not the heart of Moses. That was not the heart of Paul, and that's not the heart of Jesus. So although Israel, as a majority, had rejected Jesus, Paul wants us to remember their beginning. So Paul begins by acknowledging that God chose Israel. Why? To reveal himself, to reveal his plan, and to later on to reveal his Messiah, his son. And if you look at the verses that we just read, mainly verses 4 and 5 of chapter 9, Paul lists several advantages, several benefits that Israel had. If you look at verse 4, the first benefit was the adoption. No other nation, no other nation on the planet could say that they were God's special treasure like Israel could. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, 
It declares of Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Hear this, out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. They had the adoption. They were adopted, chosen by God. But in the second, they had the glory. They had the glory. The glory belonged to them, which is a reference to the physical presence of God that was with them while they went from point A to point B, while they went from Egypt to Israel. We know the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had the cloud of God covering them by day, and they had God's continual nightlight. Um, all throughout their journey, all 40 years of it. Next on the list is the covenants. For our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And what Paul is alluding to is this. God made a covenant with Abraham for the land of Israel. God made a covenant with Moses for the people of the land. And then God made a covenant with David for the Messiah who would come to the people in that land. So God keeps his covenants then paul speaks of the giving of the law god revealed himself his holiness his expectations for us through the law all pointing us to jesus then paul mentions here the service of god god provided a means for the the people to approach him through the service of the priests and through the work in the, the tabernacle and the, the temple, through the sacrificial system that we, the people, could draw near to God in that way. And then finally, Paul mentions the promises and the patriarchs. We have so many promises given to the patriarchs of old, promises given to the people of Israel, promises of land, promises of the Messiah who has come. And all of this is in, included in God's choice of Israel. Now, many people, even in the church, especially right now, often wonder, why, why do you Christians support Israel so much? What's the big deal about Israel? And first of all, let me say this. I don't support everything that modern-day Israel does politically or socially. I don't. Maybe you do, and that's fine, but I, hopefully that's not the reason you support them. What we support, what I support, is God's covenant that he made with them. Amen. That's the point. Because of that, we support Israel, that God made all of these promises that he has, that he is, and that he will keep toward them. And so we believe, especially according to Romans 9 through 11, that God is not done with the nation of Israel. And we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So, first of all, God's pick was Israel. Second, God's preference is independent. God's preference is independent. Now look with me at verses 6 through 13 of chapter 9, and Paul writes these words. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So this section begins with the reality that God's word has not failed. How do we know that? Because some Jews did believe. Some Jews were transformed from just physical Israelites to spiritual Israelites, to children of the promise. So the rejection of Christ by the majority of Israel does not negate the promise of God to the majority to save. In fact, God's choice to save was, was not and is not based upon physical descent or human merit. Just think about this. God doesn't operate on the basis of human connection, who you're related to. If you think you're saved because your aunt is a missionary in Africa, you are wrong. In fact, in the same way, God doesn't operate on the basis of human performance, that we work and we work and we work, and if we work hard enough, we earn our way. Because the Bible is clear, we can never do enough to ever earn our way. God has done it all. But the picture is this, and this is what Paul mentions. It's a word that makes us shudder sometimes. God operates on the basis of divine election. Divine election. And I pray that that word makes us a little uncomfortable. It should make us a little uncomfortable. And that's what Paul's trying to do. So he could say, before children were born, God could say, the older will serve, or the, the younger, excuse me, will, will serve, the younger will be served by the older. The, the two examples he uses were Abraham and Isaac, the son of promise, and then Jacob and Esau. God choosing Jacob to be served by Esau, the older, even while they were in the womb. And then Paul quotes in verse 13, a verse that's quoted in Malachi 1, where he says, As is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let that verse just wash over you for a second because that verse sounds so unfair. Yet let me say this. In, in Hebrew thought, when love and hate are contrasted, they usually are an expression of strong preference over the other. Meaning in Luke 14, when Jesus said, if you're going to come and follow me, you must hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister. Jesus wasn't saying, hate them, love me, because Jesus has spent time saying, love your enemy. Love those who, who do you wrong. What Jesus is saying is this, choose me over them. And so when it says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, it's meaning God is saying, I chose Jacob to be the one of promise, the one who I would bring forth my son to, and I didn't choose Esau. Listen, we don't know why God loved Jacob. Jacob was a schemer. He lived his life scheming all the way, but what we do know is, hear this, none of us deserve the love of God. None of us are deserving. Why does God love us so much that he sent forth his son? I'll never know. I'll never know. I will never know. Only, all I can say is because he is love. And all we can do is respond in gratitude to his amazing grace and love. Someone once said to Dr. A.C. Gabalin, a gifted Hebrew Christian leader um, of a generation ago, someone came to him and said, I have a serious problem with Malachi 1.3 where it says, Esau have I hated. And Dr. Gabalon said, well, I have a greater problem with Jacob have I loved. We can't always explain God's grace and mercy until we experience his grace and mercy. But here's what we do know. God is 
is even willing to be the God of Jacob. And he is willing to be the God of you and me because of his great love. No matter how we choose to look at the doctrine of election, we will never be able to wrap our minds around it. It's hard to figure out how the Bible can say that God predetermined, that God elected us and chose us before the foundation of the world. But at the same time, the Bible declares that God demands that we make a choice to follow him after we're born. God chooses us according to the word of God, but also we must choose him. Yet the Bible says both are true. God elects us, but then God tells us to call upon him. He predetermines. He calls, but then we have to believe. We have to believe. So how does that work? I can't unravel it perfectly. But let me give you an illustration that's helped me. It came from A.W. Tozer. And he says this. He writes this. An ocean liner leaves New York bound for Liverpool. Its destination has been determined by proper authorities. Nothing can change it. This is at least a faint picture of sovereignty. On board the liner are several scores of passengers. These are not in chains. Neither are their activities determined for them by decree. They are completely free to move about as they will. On this liner, they eat, sleep, play, lounge about on the deck, read, talk, all together as they please. But all the while, the great liner is carrying them steadily onward toward a predetermined port. So both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they don't contradict each other because God can't contradict himself. The mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course in the sea of history. God moves undisturbed towards his unhindered purpose in Christ Jesus before the world began. We do not know all that's included in all of those purposes, but enough has been uh, disclosed to us that we can have faith and trust and have a firm assurance that God's plan will be fulfilled for us. It's a picture of God's preference is independent, yet we are responsible in it. More on that. Number three, God's plan is impeccable. God's plan is impeccable. Look at verses 14 through 18 now. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So more difficult verses, but God's plan is impeccable, meaning God's plan is flawless, it's faultless. God's plan is uncorrupted and uncorruptible. And the next illustration that Paul gives us here is kind of a contrast between Moses and Pharaoh. Two men, both sinners, both murderers, both saw the majesty and the power of God. One was saved, Moses, one was not. And verse 15 takes us back to Exodus 33. After Moses asked God to blot his name out for the sake of Israel, God told him, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
And after God said this, a plague swept through the people, killing 3,000 of them. You might say, well, how could God say, I'm going to have mercy on whoever I have mercy, and then he kills 3,000 people. That doesn't sound like mercy to me until we realize every person deserved death. Every person down in Israel deserved to die. Every single one of them. And God had mercy in not killing them all. Listen, the grace of God has been spoken about all throughout Romans, but it's not until we get here that now we see and hear about the mercy of God. The definition of God's mercy is receiving something that you do not deserve. Listen, if you deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy, it would be justice. And so if God doesn't, please hear this, if God doesn't owe us mercy, then you can't say it's unfair for him not to give you an unlimited amount of it. You can't say, well, so-and-so got 12 chances, I only got 10, and I'm having to suffer for all of my consequences. God must not be merciful. The fact that God gave you one chance shows he's merciful. I mean, that's the, the picture that sometimes, listen, God is, I don't care, we have all questioned God's mercy at one time or another, and we are so stupid because we forget God is more merciful than we can ever be. God is more merciful than you have ever thought about being. Ever. And so this picture is, God is merciful. And so then Paul takes us to Pharaoh. In the, the book of Exodus, we are told that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Do you remember that? Pharaoh turned away from God. God hardened his heart. But before that, we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Walt, Walt Kaiser, who's an Old Testament theologian, says this concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In all, there are ten places where hardening of Pharaoh's heart is ascribed to God, that God did it. But it also must be stated just as firmly that Pharaoh hardened his own heart in another ten passages. Thus, the hardening was as much Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. Even more significant is the fact that Pharaoh alone was the agent of the hardening in the first five plagues. Not until the sixth plague was it stated that God actually moved and hardened Pharaoh's heart, as he had warned Moses and Midian that he would have to do. So ultimately, understand this. God is not to blame for Pharaoh's hard heart. Pharaoh is. Someone's rejection of God is always presented in this way. When Jesus cried out for Jerusalem in Matthew 23, when Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather you and gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And listen to what Jesus says, But you were not willing. Jesus didn't say, I wasn't willing. Jesus didn't say, I wasn't willing to gather you. And he says, You weren't willing. You weren't willing. Listen, we need to understand the tension here. The late James Kennedy used a really helpful illustration, and maybe an illustration that, again, makes us a little uncomfortable, but he said this, say you have five people planning to hold up a bank. They are friends of mine. Well, I find out about it, and I plead with them not to do it. I beg them. Finally, they push me out of the way and head out. I tackle the weakest one and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead, rob the bank. In the process, they kill a guard and two civilians. They're captured, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison. But the one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Kennedy said, now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men were arrested and sentenced? Can they blame me? 
And this other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is good and I resisted temptation, that I am free? No. The only reason that he is free is because of me. I restrained him. So it is that those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see salvation is all grace from beginning to end. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. If you decide you're going to harden your heart against God, if you are determined to go to hell, God will honor your choice. If you're determined to go to hell, God will say, as you will. As you wish. Therefore, if you are saved, the credit is God's alone. And if you are lost, the blame as of right now is all yours. It's all yours. So God's plan is impeccable. It's faultless. But leads, leads us to the last point today. God's purpose is inclusive. God's purpose is inclusive. We're going to look at verses 19 through 29 now and just see this inclusive purpose of God with some more things that are hard for us to wrap our minds around, some statements that are hard for us to figure out. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, You will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But you who, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to you, you are not my people, that there, excuse me, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted... If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God's purpose is inclusive. And what I mean by that is this. God's purpose includes everyone, both Jew and Gentile, people, those from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. And these verses teach us that God is always just but God doesn't treat everyone exactly the same way. And that almost sounds un-American for us because we have always learned all men are created equal. And that's true in one sense, but yet it's not true in another. It's true that we are all created in the image of God and we are deserving of dignity and worth. We're equal in our significance to the God who has made us. But this verse specifies there's two Different groups of people within the human race. One group is called the objects of wrath, as Paul says. They're said to be prepared for destruction. 
And the other is called the objects of mercy that Paul says were prepared in advance for glory. And this is where the idea of predetermination runs wild. With some believing that right here what Paul is teaching is that God has made some people for the whole purpose to make them and send them to hell. Without any um, thought, without any objections on their part, they're made for the purpose of going to hell. And then God made some in advance for the purpose of heaven. Yet the word prepared in verse 22, when it speaks of those prepared for destruction, is what is called the middle voice in the Greek. So it means this, they have prepared themselves for destruction. What it means is this, and don't miss this, men fit themselves for hell through their disobedience of God. Yet God fits men for heaven through his grace and mercy. And maybe you're here today, and maybe inwardly you right now have your arms crossed, and you're thinking, well, maybe God didn't choose me for salvation. Maybe that's what you're saying. And let me respond. If that's your thought right now, well, did God choose me? Call on him right now and ask him to save you. And if you do, you will come to know that you are chosen. You will come even in this moment. But maybe you would say, well, I don't want to today. Well, then maybe you're not chosen. Maybe you're not. And then you would say, well, that's not fair. Well, then call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Well, I don't want to. Then maybe you're not chosen. And the picture is the fact you're the one who's choosing to reject the one who has called you. This very day, you have been called to salvation. This very day, you have been called to the one who died for you. Brothers and sisters, if one day... You endure this life, reject Christ, and you end up in hell. You will have no one to blame but yourself. And if this day you turn to Jesus, and one day you are face-to-face with him in heaven, you will have no one to praise but him. But him. And no, I don't understand how all of this works. But I do know that God's promises are true. I know God, and he can be trusted. Let me end with a little story that Dwight L. Moody used to tell. He says, our our, uh, travel into salvation is like this. He says, it's like you're walking through a hallway and there are many doors. So you have the choice. You can go in any room you want. And you're walking down the hallway and you're looking at the doors and you see a sign on a particular door that says above it, whosoever will may come. And you think, I'll go to that door. I'm curious what's on the other side. So you make the choice. You open the door and you enter in. And as you enter in, you see a table set and your name is on the place setting almost as if you were anticipated. And then the door closes automatically behind you. And on the inside of the door is the sign that says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And maybe you say, but hang on a second. I made the choice. And now you discover You've been chosen. Both are true. Is that your truth? Have you this day heard the call of God of salvation over your life? And have you responded to the call of God? If you haven't, will you? Will you this day call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? As we saw two weeks ago, God could not, he can't do any more for you than he's already done. He has already sent forth his son. He can't do any more. He gave you his most precious gift. Oh, to God, 
Oh, to God, that you would this day call upon him. And don't use things that you can't understand to confuse what you know to be true. That this very day you can be saved or you can walk in assurance of your salvation. I know this, this seems confusing for us and it's confusing for me. But I can assure you, I want to end with the words of J. Oswald Sanders. And these words are so good and so true. He says this, What will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of God's mercy. That's what's going to absolutely amaze us when we look back. Not how mean God was, but how merciful God was to us every day of our lives. And if you are here this morning under the sound of God's word, it's because God is merciful. He is merciful to us. Oh, to God that we would, we would choose to believe him now. We would choose to understand his sovereignty or just trust his sovereignty and our responsibility. And God has put them together in eternity. There's no way in the world I can dissect them and try to put them back together. God did it. We just have to trust it. And we have to trust that I don't know all the plans of God, but I know him. And he can be trusted. If you can go ahead and stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward and enter into this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. God, as difficult and deep as it might be, Lord, the truth that shines forth from it. God, you are sovereign. You have done everything. You've done everything, Lord, possible for us to be saved. And Lord, in your word, God, throughout, there is a choice that we have to make, a decision and maybe today we're at the valley of decision, of deciding whether we're going to trust you or whether we're going to reject you. Today I pray, Lord, if any be in this room right now who don't know you, that this moment would be the moment of salvation. That this moment would be the moment they call upon you and are saved. That this moment would be the moment, God, that they confess to you that they have sinned. They have missed the mark. God, they have sinned against you and they are not worthy to be saved. But yet, God, in trusting what your son Jesus has done for them. They are made worthy because of Jesus. Well, I just pray, Father, that any who don't know you in this moment would call upon you. Just confirm today, Lord, just the fact that you can be trusted. Even though we can't understand all there is to know about you, that's a good thing. That's a good thing because it means, God, that you are so much greater than us. And the beautiful thing is God will never get to the bottom of you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grace, grace.